Blog Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. Wait, hold on. I'm trying to put the... Okay, try this. Maybe if I maybe if I connect this, it'll put, put everything in the, through the speaker. Speaker, speaker, speaker. I put you in the uh, green room on the uh, host line. It should not do that. Okay. How's that? Can you hear me? That that is good. You can hear me. Yes, I can okay. hear you fine. And I can hear you fine. Okay. Okay. We... See, I, I had to plug in my speaker uh, to to my headsets to keep the sound from going through the computer, and I couldn't mute it for some reason. Wouldn't let me mute, so the sound is still coming through my headsets. But for some reason, I'm not getting audio, and I did everything you told me to. I found the page. I found, you know, all yeah. the stuff. I it just every time I looked at the audio, the microphone. I talked into it, and the little bar jumped up just just a little bit away from the end, mm. and I tried to drag it over, and it wouldn't let me drag it over. So it was picking it up. Well, it just wasn't doing. That part you don't drag. It's it's just a like a volume meter. The part you huh. drag is in is in the actual setup of uh, for that input. But uh, if it was it barely, I don't know, maybe blue on your side, but it's a thin gray bar. Yeah, the green bar is a little red at the end. Okay, well, wow, mine doesn't turn red. Wow. Um, okay, so when you were talking, the meter moved, right? I mean, it it showed that you were talking. Yeah, just a, just a little bit, but it did move. Yes. Oh, maybe the volume. Maybe you were there, and the volume was real low. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't see any. I I threw all the switches and everything I can think of. I got a new yeah. new headset, people. If you know, obviously we're live now, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. I've got a new headset. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, I was playing with it all week. I was listening to different things on YouTube and all that all week long, which was great and was wonderful. And I said, "All right, this is going to work well." Then Mike and I yeah. got on, and I tried to talk to him, and my microphone wouldn't work. It's it's a headset with microphone, and the microphone wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. I grabbed my old one, and yeah. that one wouldn't work. I jumped back and forth and tried different ones and everything, and. I could not get volume. Or, uh, That's how it is. Yeah. So. Oh, uh, I need to do the intro. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, totally skipped we, over. Anyway, we're on, we're on Facebook and uh, Twitch right now. I didn't know if you were uh, saying anything I, to continue or if you were postponing or what. Yeah, yeah, um, we'll continue. I can I can use this here. Okay. I'm, I'm going to talk about great cones and, uh, you know, some information okay. tonight. I just want to pass on that, uh, well, you know, um, just some interesting stuff and so yeah we'll continue tonight next week we have a guest and okay. uh then the following uh, week we uh, have a guest do you want the official intro or you just want to go ahead and start the show yeah just, had... let's, let's, let's get our bus people in here okay. <laughs> <laughs> make sure i get the right sh- right show thing because i don't want the zombies again from last week no uh, that's okay. true <laughs> here we go yeah. Yeah. hello This is All About Wine, the talk show dedicated to the wine industry since 2009. Featuring winemaker, cellar master, vineyardist, and tasting expert, Ron. Basically what we're trying to do on this program is just trying to educate people and trying to make wine less confusing and more friendly. From coast to coast and around the world. 
you know, we really have had some some neat people on the program. I, I just, I love that. Post your questions and comments during the live show on our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash allaboutwinebtr. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash allaboutwinebtr. And now, All About Wine is on. Here's Ron. We are officially on now. If anybody listened to us for the first few minutes there, then we weren't official, but now we are. Yes, now we are official. Yeah. Uh, See, I've got my sound page pulled up here, and the input, it says choose your input, uh, no Mm -hmm. input device found. I click on this, and it doesn't give me an input device to to click on now for some reason. That's a problem. Oh. Yeah, well, it was on. I, I it didn't oh. give it to me for some reason. Let me unplug this and plug it back in. Because if I don't plug it back in, there. Okay. Headset with microphone. That's clicked. And okay, that's clicked. Now that that gives me. And it should say choose your input device. Now it's still saying no input device found. It said it earlier when I was playing with it, but it's not doing it now. I don't know. Yeah, I guess I'm going to have to really... See, the problem is I don't have anybody to talk to on the microphone to see if it's working or not. Right. You know? And yeah. so I, I try to, you know, I double-check. Like I said, I was listening to different things on the headsets, and they were working great. And I figured, okay, this is good. But then when I got to the point where I can actually talk to you, that's mm-hmm. when I discovered that the microphone wouldn't work. I wish I could get you set up with... Um the software mixer that I'm using because it gives you instant feedback. You can record yourself as well and hear what the quality is and adjust the volumes. And it's just, it's just software and you have to, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's yeah. if you can, yeah, can you send me a link? Would that work? Yeah. Yeah. I can send you, I can send you how to uh, download it, but that I use, uh, well, I, they have two different versions. I, I had to use the, the paid version because I, I have all my inputs going into it uh, because uh, you can have your I set it I set my uh, Windows uh, this is Windows 101 for right now by the way but uh, I set <laughs> I set my uh, sound device uh, as um, one of the channels on this mixer it's it's a software mixer it's like uh, I don't know how many channels but you can pipe just about anything through it that you want and then the output. You know, I can have it to my speakers, or I can click a button and my my speakers turn off, and then I can just hear it through my headset, or have oh. them both on. It's, it's yeah, it's crazy. But uh, I'll send you a link to it and uh, see how that works out, and maybe some instruction on how to you know set up your uh, microphone on one of the channels. And um, but you get as I'm talking now, I can see the volume meters going up and down, and you know, uh, and I can hear myself if I want to as a test before I go on, I always test it. Cause you know, even this thing sometimes has some static on it, but, uh, there's, yeah, it's, it's a good, good program and it's free. So yeah. Yeah. Well, good. Uh, that's, that's what I need. I just, yep. I found a, um, oh, that's not going to be the page I want. I found a Microsoft, Microsoft Bing page here on how to set up and test your microphone in windows 10, which, hmm. I, I don't know if that's going to help me or not. I'll have to play with that later. But, yeah, maybe yeah. later. There we go. 
Okay. So, uh, well, yeah, yeah, I want to sign in and everything. Yeah, if you can send me that leak, a link, then yeah. I'll uh, okay. I'll get that thing in and, and start playing with this this week and yeah. get us ready yeah. for our... Well, at least we've been lucky we haven't had these problems with a guest, so... That's true. That's well, one we good thing. We've been very lucky, and now they're now they're making us pay for it. <laughs> yes, yeah. Now we're going to pay for it. But, yeah. Oh well, I'm on landline. I'm you know here, and you know you put me in the green room on as host, and that still didn't help getting oh, the sound. Oh, you're still getting you're still getting feedback. And I'm still getting feedback here. I'll unplug my headset, and you can hear the feedback as it comes through. Yeah, you just unplug your device, and I'm getting all sorts of feedback and everything. And then I plug wow. it back in, and it takes a couple of seconds, and then it hooks it back into the headset, and so everything is fine there. So, uh, I don't know, it's just really weird tonight for some reason. But, yeah. oh well. So, for all of you people who tune in and listen to All About Wine, this is All About Wine. This is not uh, a tech show. This is All About Wine. And uh, we are going to talk about wine and stuff here in just a second. But for some reason, my speaker didn't work on either one of my ones. I was using one headphone forever, and the speaker's working. And tonight, I decided not to. So, I haven't done anything. Disclaimer that uh, it, it's wine that you drink. It's not wine uh, no, that you whining about the speakers not working or the headphones. <laughs> the microphone. A wine. <laughs> there's a wine software or a package, yeah. I guess, for uh, for Linux operating systems that lets you run Windows software in Linux. Uh, uh, it's like a Unix-based software, anyway. But yeah. that's, that's <laughs> another wine, and it's not exactly the same, unfortunately. But not- this is a drinking stuff. This is the drinking stuff, right? This is what we're going to talk about uh, on that. So we got that out of the way. <laughs> we got that yeah. out of the way. I, if you are tuning in to listen to us at 8 o'clock on Thursday, November the 5th, then you have forgotten to turn your clocks back last Sunday. So run around the house and do that right now because you've already missed the show. We came on at 7, and you have to listen to us on archives. So... Uh, Yep, exactly. <laughs> so go, go take care of that now. You can't, you know, clock should have been set back an hour. And Halloween's done past, and uh, election's done past, mm. and everything's behind yeah. us, and so we're ready to move on in toward Thanksgiving now. I have to tell you a funny story, though, about, about Halloween. This Halloween, because of uh, uh, COVID-19 and all that stuff, we did a little bit of different approach to Halloween. I took a card table and set it out in the driveway, and I grabbed a chair and set it just inside the door of the driveway. And we took these little bite-sized uh, snack bars, the uh, 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 Mars and uh, Snickers and Three Musketeers and Twix and all those, we took those little bite-sized things and we put two of them in each peanut butter, or not peanut butter, in a cupcake cup. And put put two in each cupcake cup and put them on the table so kids can just walk up and grab a cupcake cup and throw it in their bag and leave. And then that way, you know, we, we're not right on top of the kids and 
you know, the safe distance and all that. And we've had, you know, quite a few people mention, you know, that's a good idea. Well, we like that idea. We like that idea. One little boy came up. I guess he was about five years old. And he ran up to the table and reached down. He grabbed a little snicker out of one of the cups. I said, no, no, take it all. And so his eyes got real big, and he started to stack up all the cups. He was going to take them all. <laughs> his mother his mother came up to him and said, no, you only take one. And he looked at her and looked at me, and he put it back down, and he took one. And I meant take one cup, you know, just take it all. And he, he got all excited because he thought he was going to get everything on the table. So that was... <laughs> that was funny, and from then on, I adjusted my language. <laughs> so, but I just thought that was a, a funny thing. Uh, my engineer just brought me a bottle of red wine. We're going to have some 2016 Seven Deadly Zins. Oh no, this is Seven Deadly Red. No, the Seven Deadly Zins. Is this the Zins or Red? No, this is Seven Deadly Reds. It's not the Seven Deadly Zens. Yeah, I will smell in a second. Michael David Winery puts this out. They have a Seven Deadly Zen that they put out. But uh, look at this. We bought a Seven Deadly Red, which is it's not a Seven Deadly Zen. It says, do you know uh, an explanation? Well, I'm having a hard time reading this. This is smaller than my... I just can read on this tonight. Uh, well, I don't have sunlight shining through the window because of daylight saving time. Uh, oh, okay. Do you dare an exploration to the dark unknown? This zinfully delicious red wine set you down a path of... Uh, Glutamania pleasure. I'm having a hard time reading this. Crafted from the diverse and hollowed soils of the Lodi Appalachian, which are where greedy winemakers hunger to craft not just wine, but also a lifestyle of sin. Here for six generations, we've uh, tempted evil's wrath and are eventually uh, and are eternally damned to deliver uh, decadent wines like our seven deadly red. I'm sorry I didn't read that better, but uh, like I said, I had trouble reading it. It's on a red background with white letters and small, and I had trouble reading it. But Seven Deadly Zen, Michael David, they have Seven Deadly Zen. This is Seven Deadly Red, and it is, oh, fantastic aroma. I, even, I smell chocolate and that aroma jumping out at me. That's just wonderful. Plum, chocolate. Mm. Yeah, oh, definitely plummy chocolate. And the taste, we have to do this. Oh, that is wonderful. It's got some tannins in it, but not a lot. It's not going to turn people off who don't like real tannic wines. 
the acid come back and hit you in the aftertaste, but not overpowering acid in the aftertaste, just enough there to give it that little bite. And it's got a nice nice finish. It's still lingering on there. Uh, the dryness in the mouth is... The oak is picked up in the dryness in the mouth. It is definitely a plummy chocolate. You can uh, feel that in, in the taste uh, right from the beginning there. Nice uh, nice plumminess and a little chocolate undertones to it. Uh, nothing's been added. That's just what the grapes giving it, by the way. Uh, great wine, really is. Seven Deadly Red. Uh, never, We've never had it before, so this is our first time. We've had the Seven Deadly Zens quite a few times, and we loved it. But the Seven Deadly Red is really living up to the uh, high standards that the Seven Deadly Zen has came out with. So if you get a chance, pick it up. Seven Deadly Red. Uh, it's a red wine 2016. This one is uh, low dye uh, Appalachian. So uh, there you go. Uh, I get a check, and everyone's want to be sure I'm still on. And you can still hear me, can't you, Mike? I'm I'm still. Yeah, you're Yep, okay. Good. Good. I just mm-hmm. I, I, I'm I'm so paranoid tonight. I'm I'm just afraid. So I have to do that. So if you hear me stop every once in a while and take a sip, it's because of this wine. It's well worth the, the little stop and sip that I'm going to have to do throughout the show. All right. I've got some stuff to tell you about tonight that I haven't had an opportunity because we've had guests the whole month of October. And I pulled these out, and I'm going to talk to you about these. But first one, natural wine. What is natural wine? Uh, we've talked to some guests, and they brought up some points about this natural wine this past uh, couple, you know, month and a half or so. And they've talked about uh, organic, and we've talked about different certifications. But the debate on natural wine, what is natural wine? One of the most common criticisms uh, leveled from outside natural wine community is that there has never been an agreed-upon definition of what natural wine actually is. But now a French organization called the Syndicat de Defense de Vins Naturels, and I destroyed that, I'm sure. It's an official certification process which was created this past March for wines produced anywhere in the world. And it's for natural wine. The first governmentally recognized definition of what qualifies as a natural wine. Okay, and the certification intends to bring clarity to the term of natural wine. But will it? Uh, they don't know. Uh, it could invite imposters. It could invite people to do it. There is no... No government regulations on it. This is just an organization saying that this is it. When they first started to talk about natural wines uh, 10, 15 years ago, people knew what it was. This is a quote from uh, Isabel Garin, and uh, she's the founder of the Raw Wine Fair, which is the largest natural wine community. And she says, says I think now that it's become a popular movement, in a popular category, the term is being abused. Uh, people are saying that their wine is natural, and it 
doesn't even fall into the organic category or any other category, and they just call it natural just to be with it. And so that's why they came up with this certification. It aims to address this confusion. Uh, the French government also felt that there was a need to define the category, and it empowered a uh, Sebastian David and uh, one of the syndicate's members to get to work with other fellow syndicate members and try to track down a natural winemaking process that is can be certified that has uh, been in use since before World War One, and they want to be sure that it is being followed and it is part of the natural wine movement. They have came up with two certifications. Okay, in the end, the syndicate came with one for wines without added sulfites and one with added sulfites. Okay, now this is something that I, I think is going to cause contention maybe down the road. Personal thought there. As long as this total amount of sulfites and the with sulfites come to 30 milligrams per liter or less, then it can be classified as natural, okay, if you add sulfites. Uh, Otherwise, all the certifications for everything of with or without is all the same. It doesn't change any. Uh, Natural wine is made using indigenous yeast without acidification and without added nutrients. This is among other requirements. So the uh, consumer... Wants to know what's in this bottle, that's what's in the bottle. A natural wine just has certain things in it, and that's it. Everything's natural. But having these two types of wine doesn't really clarify the situation. Uh, A lot of them say natural wine is not sulfites added. It should be with no sulfites at all. And so, you know, if you have it on the label saying natural wine is added sulfites and bring up the 30, Okay, I mean, if they clarify that, I think, personally, that that's good. That's okay. You know, you're telling people that this has it. This natural wine does not have added sulfites. This one does. So, therefore, if you want to get one with full added sulfites, then it's your choice. It's a nice thing to know that certification addresses both anyway, so, therefore, you can look at either one of them and make your choice. Number of the wineries obtaining certification is growing rapidly. They said when they first started, uh, we were, uh, uh, David says they were 40 or 45 six months ago. Now they're more than 300 have actually asked for uh, natural wine um, certification. I guess that's it is a cert- certification. And so now there's over the 300. Yeah. I, most wines aren't natural unless you're spraying a whole bunch of stuff in the vineyard and all that. I mean, that's really where the natural wine comes from is that you're not over spraying, over chemical treating in the vineyard. And that usually takes care of everything there. So that's usually the, the only difference here. The, um, most of them are across France, though. There's quite a few across France. Very few of them outside of the country of France. None in the United States as of yet. Uh, there are a few in Spain and Italy, but uh, they've, they've joined the syndicate, but not a lot. There's uh, most all of the 
ones that are getting certification as natural wine is now French wineries. And they're saying it's going to take time to get other wineries to embrace this and join it. But there are wine bars around the world. And one picture in New York City, the Ten Bells Wine Bar, is well known for natural wine. It's a natural wine bar. And they've done their own research on almost every wine on their list, and they said that most all of them are natural wines. There's a few that aren't, and they actually will let people know. And then uh, there's another place uh, in uh, uh, Hudson Yards, which is a high-end development in New York, where natural wine is not established the way it is at uh, Ten Bells, which is in Manhattan's Lower East Side. But it's something that they're looking and striving to doing. With this new certification, they can now come out and say, well, these have been certified natural. So it's going to help something like that when you have a wine bar that's trying to sell natural wines. Uh, the price should not be affected, too. This is an aside from me. The price should not be affected from natural wine. Natural wines are, most wines, except for a bunch of spray that you know they can avoid at times, natural wines are going to be the same price. You're not. There's no reason to raise the price on natural wine. So if that's, they keep that in mind, then it should not be an issue at all as far as price goes. Uh, there's a place in San Francisco called uh, Tofino Wines. It's a wine barn retail outlet that specializes in natural wine. They said 95% of theirs are natural, and there's a lot of people that come in looking for natural wines. They understand what natural wines are, and they're looking for it. And they have a basic definition in their mind what natural wines are. And so with the certification now, they can quantify their thoughts and say, okay, this is actually a natural wine. Uh, the opportunity to answer questions about it and all that with the new certification is going to help these different places and show that there are actually a certification for natural wines. will make it easier for the consumers and for the companies. But some natural wine supporters are concerned that the certification is going to open doors to large companies that produce certifiable natural wines that comply to the letter of the specifications, but not to the spirit of natural wine. And, you know, you understand what I'm saying about that, I'm sure. It's, it's well, this is actually a natural wine. I mean, it's specifications state that it needs to be this and this and this, but as far as practice goes, they're fudging the edges of the natural wine. And so there's no, there's no uh, inspections, there's no judging, there's no people going around saying, okay, uh, you're not following this, so therefore that's not a natural wine. It's not happening now. The certification is new, and they're trying to get it to the point where it's going to be self-monitoring, self-policing, and it, as we all know, that doesn't always work. And so that's something that they're looking at now to be sure that this is all going to fall within the proper categories of a natural wine. Uh, one particular person here, uh, oh, where is he? I can't find the name of this article now, said that 
you know, as long as we're doing this, why don't we take this step further and go carbon footprint scan code on the models as well, you know, and be sure that they are not impacting their environment at all. But at the moment, the onus falls on natural producers to explain what makes their wines natural, and then certification may become a useful aid in that regard. This article also says, for now, it's too early to tell. Most of the newly certified wines have yet to be released, and the industry is distracted with other news. As Ravine really says, the individual that said that earlier, I can't find his name here, but as Ravine Riley notes, a lot of writers have called me up and asked about it, but nobody in the industry has talked to me about it at all. So that just shows you where the natural wine is. It's it's a good thing. It's an industry-wide thing, but it is not a uh, something that the wineries are fully embraced as of yet. But natural wine, a lot of people are mentioning natural wine and talk about natural wines. So uh, uh, that gives you an idea of where that is. Okay, now... Let's see, uh, natural wine, something else here, let's see where it's 7.30, something else here that I wanted to address with you, these are four virtual wine education programs for every budget. We've talked about wine education programs on lots of different shows, and some of our guests that have came on the shows have had certifications and different uh, certifications through the years that they've accomplished and different things and all that. And we just try to keep you informed of it. Well, here's four of them that is within budgets. Anyone can taste, uh, obtain, taste, and enjoy wine in some capacity, but mastering it is a little bit different. But that's not always the case. Uh, most of the traditional wine certifications really require a lot of study and a lot of money. Those are the two biggest barriers for a lot of people to reach out and say, okay, I've got this certification, because it's just the cost. Mainly that's one of the big things. People are very knowledgeable, but they just don't spend the time and the cost and test. I I, for one, am not good at testing. I may know a lot about a subject, but you set me down to do a test, and I tend to fail miserably on tests. I am not a good tester. And I know a lot of people over my lifetime that's the same way. You may be one of them. But that's beginning to change. It's a new wave of low-cost or free virtual offerings is now becoming available through wine education and whether you want to pursue a career or just want to feel like you can talk to people about it the following courses are available and they're a little bit more recently priced than the thousands that you might pay for some of them one of the most comprehensive free offerings in wine education is the south australian school offers a six-week self-paced virtual course with an option to obtain obtain a certificate from the University of South Australia. Now, to get the certificate, it's going to cost you $199, but the course itself is free. It is taught by four of the university's wine and viticulture professors, 
and it's entitled World of Wine from Grape to Glass, and it covers subjects and topics like grape growing and winemaking practices and how they impact the wine's appearance, aromas, and flavors, as well as how to describe wine like a professional. Around 80,000 people from more than 100 countries have ruined this program since its launch. So there you go. That's a good deal right there. I mean, you can get the knowledge. If you really want the certificate, 200 bucks, you can have a certificate hang on the wall in your office or wherever it is most noticed. St. Michelle Wine Estates. We've all had wines from St. Michelle. If you haven't, then you really should because they put out some really pretty decent wines. But they're widely known for their elite portfolio of certain wines, and they've came out with a bunch of different ones. Pats and Hall is another one of St. Michelle's brands. And they're now sharing it with some insight in classes. They've recently curated a free smartphone and tablet-friendly online course that dives into making, tasting, and serving wines. Now, that's something you can carry with you and while you're waiting in line places. This is a good thing to do. Called the Wine Companion. That's, that's what it is, the Wine Companion. The free guide includes advice from St. Michelle winemakers and a quiz at the end of each of his three chapters. Initially, the platform was intended for folks to work in restaurants, bars, and other wine service venues, but they realized that it provided a great wine 101 foundation for anyone interested in wine, said Paul uh, Asikanen, the National Wine Educator for St. Michelle. No cost. Just study the journal page, three chapters, and there you go. St. Michelle Estate, the Wine Companion is what it's called. Sunday School Wine. This is not your typical Sunday school. Started by a pair of wine pros in Portland, Oregon, this offers out-of-the-box weekly online wine sessions to the masses. Past Classes featured original titles like WTF is Orange Wine. Well, actually, if you listen to All About Wine, you know WTF Orange Wine because we've had someone that was on the show about it. Oh, speaking of that, too, I was actually able to listen in on a couple of the seminars during the uh, virtual Orange Wine Week, and it was interesting. I didn't contribute everything i just sat back and listened and it was it was fun to listen to the discussions and seminars about orange wine and uh, making them and different things that they did that was that was really fun if you had an opportunity to do the orange wine week any part of it then good for you that uh, she'll be doing it next year i'm sure and uh, we'll get back into it next year but wtf is orange wine one of the courses another one natural wine naked pure and thoroughly contentious these are a couple of the titles. Spots are reserved for don- by donation. They recommend $30. And classes are free for individuals who identify as black, indigenous, or people of color. I guess they feel that those people are being slighted in the wine industry, and so they did that. So we were conscious that a lot of people were put off by the snobbiness and exclusiveness of the traditional wine world. So we created Sunday School as a casual and inviting space where anyone, regardless of wine knowledge, can learn about wine. 
This is by co-founder Mallory Smith. Our classes are approachable and accessible, fun and playful, and we don't take ourselves too seriously. So there's a thing, approachable. I've always always thought that was a weird word when you start applying it to wine. This wine is very approachable. Any wine's approachable. You pick it up and you approach it to your mouth. I don't understand. Approachable. I, to me, that's just a, a very strange word to use when it comes to wine. But, you know, if you really want to sound snobby, you can do that. A group of people sniff your wine and say, oh, this wine is really approachable. And everybody go, ooh. Then, San Francisco Wine School. Now, this is typically priced between ninety-five and one hundred twenty-five dollars. It's a, a cost one, but it's not going to run you that three, four, five hundred thousand that some do. The San Francisco Wine School hosts online workshops that explore a wide array of subjects like Bordeaux bubbles and beverage laws. Any wine included in the class can be shipped to your door, but your you supply your own vino, you receive a 40% discount on the course. But if you supply your own vino, you receive 40% discount. So that the price really is including the wine that they're tasting, so you can be tasting it with them. The best part, if you enroll in a full program after completing a workshop, the school will refund its cost. Oh, cool. These are a great way to sample a full program and see if it's the right fit for you, said Christine Campbell, who is the co-owner and COO of the uh, of the wine school. Students can students can home in on the specific topics they're interested in, whether it be a particular region, grape style, or technical topic. And so there you go. There's there's four from there that are new and exciting, and it's not going to cost you anything. So check those out, and if you want to do it, or you can just listen to every episode of All About Wine because we throw out a lot of basic wine on one one on one here, and different information, all that, so you can expand your knowledge and expand your brain. Uh, this is something I want to tell you about. No, I don't. I'll save that for some other time. Okay. Um, they have a sweet red wine. I'm not going to go into it. It's becoming very popular. Sweet red wine is very popular now for some reason, but I'm not going to go into that right now. Okay. But we are going to talk about clones. We have talked about clones to just about everybody. We've asked about clones. We've talked about where they come from. We talked about a little bit about clones to a lot of people. Well, for the next rest of the show, I'm going to talk about clones. What are grape clones? A grape clone might bring to mind scientists hunched over a petri dish and... <coughs> Excuse me. And putting together stuff and making up this this grape, but grape growers have selected and propagated their best wines for centuries. Grape clone is a cutting taken from an existing grapevine that's grafted onto rootstock. And as we've talked before, almost all all grapes is grafted onto rootstock, uh, phylloxera resistant rootstock. The vines are chosen due to specific traits that they want to reproduce, which could include Drug resist, uh, drug disease resistance, or different fruit qualities, or uh, any number of things. 
And because the cutting comes directly from another one, it's not crossbreeding the two plants. It's just an identical clone. It's from its mother vine. This is not GMO. This has nothing to do with GMO. This is a clone. Almost all of our food we eat is a clone of some sort that has been been manipulated over the years or centuries to come up with a certain type of thing that people are used to. Uh, carrots, I understand, used to be purple, and we've cloned them over the years to be orange now. But you know, and different things like this. So this isn't GMO. Somebody, for example, was strolling through a vineyard one day and they thought, wow, this vine looks really different from the other vines, so I'm going to try and reproduce it. So they would get a clipping from that and hook it onto a rootstock and see if they can't duplicate it. Now, once you graft something onto a rootstock, it doesn't change the plant one bit. So the rootstock is just a growing system. I always like to use the example, if you take my vascular system and put it in you, and your vascular system and put it in me, it's not going to change us any. We're going to still be the same people, only it's just going to be different blood vessels running through. It doesn't change us who we are. Same thing with rootstock, it doesn't change. It's just a method of getting moisture and stuff into the vine. Why do winemakers use clones? Because it's expensive to plant grapes. And so that's one of the main reasons. Anywhere you are in the country, east, west, New York, uh, down to you know Southern California, whatever, it, it's expensive. It takes several years, uh, sometimes longer, for a vine to mature. So you don't want to waste a whole lot of time sitting there fooling around with the grapevine to see how it's going to produce and how it's going to come out if it doesn't come out right then you've just wasted all that time and all that effort and all that money and all that possibilities that you're not going to get grapes to make a decent wine anyway. So if you're talking about clones, some of my plant is where is it going to grow? And that's the key to it. A plant, you plant a grapevine in one area, it's going to be completely different than another. A $20 or a $50 bottle makes a big difference. Uh, on what clones you're planting and where they are. Certain clones will be good certain areas, and certain clones will not be good in other areas. So that's the key to it. Will this grow? You can grow a Pinot Noir. They say Pinot Noirs require this type of climate, this type of temperature, and everything else. Whereas clones, okay, <coughs> excuse me, whereas clones can hedge that a little bit and be a little bit more hardy in certain areas. Certain clones can be temperature sensitive, which makes some more suitable for certain climates. And so, therefore, that's why you have to know if it's going to be what you're looking for. Some could be a deeper color. Others are better resistant to disease. And also the density of the foliage, uh, how it's ripening, the yield size, all of these factors come in for different clones. And then ultimately, is it going to taste good? Is it going to make for a good wine? So the uh, all these factors come into when you're choosing a clone, when the type of clone you want. You can uh, make all sorts of claims about it and practicing you know, what you're using on it and everything else. But the bottom line is, it's what you do in the vineyard, to, or what you do in the winery, rather, is, is going to 
make a big difference. You can use the best clones in the world. If you don't know what you're doing, it's not going to make a whole lot of difference. Uh, the word clone uh, is why Mary, uh, Nancy Sweet, who is the historian for the Foundation Plant Services, or FPS, Foundation Plant Services, University of California, Davis, says her and her colleagues uh, refer to different clones as selections instead of clones. FPS is one of the main avenues that grape growers in the United States can import clones from outside the country. All right, this is because, well, the possibility is all sorts of diseases and stuff. Scientists test and treat the cuttings for diseases before they're released to growers. The process can take years, and each clone that comes through FPS is given a reference number. For example, Chardonnay clone FPS04. It's the fourth Chardonnay clone that came through the Foundation Plant Services. We've heard people talk about different clone numbers. That's what they're referring to. American researchers began to look for new grape clones during the mid-20th century. They wanted to diversify. And uh, cuttings were imported by FPS from all over the world. Other organizations also catalog clones like the French Government Research Collective that licensed only domestic collections under the trademark ENTAV-INRA. INTAV-INRA? I don't know. I don't think it's pronounced that way. Similar clones can have more than one number if they were brought into the United States prior to the creation of INTAV-INRA. Uh, ENTAV. Uh, so, a good example of that. Pinot Noir clone number FPS 38, which is reportedly French clone number 459. However, this is unproven because it was imported before the NTTAV INRA existed, so therefore it isn't certified by the French government. Confusing? Yeah, it is. Some popular grape clones have been around for a long time. There's different types of clones available for every grape variety. You can get clones out there for just about everything. But the three most planted varieties are Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Cabernet Sauvignon. Now, for some reason, we always hear about the Pinot Noir clones, and that's the ones I've heard about most often. But the Chardonnay and the Cabernet Sauvignon also are full of clones. And... Uh, with thousands of clones available, many factors come into play in what gets planted. The Winty clone is the most known, well-known Chardonnay clone. Winty is from the Livermore Valley of California. And uh, because Winty Vineyards in Livermore was one of just two commercially viable Chardonnay vineyards to survive prohibition, that's why theirs is so popular. Many Vine cuttings have been taken over the years, and they have came up with different ones. There's multiple separate clonal lines that can be traced back to that, which includes the FPS04, FPS17, and FPS67. These are all Chardonnays. Prior to being required by FPS, the Winty clone was known for a high percentage 
of undersized, underripe berries. And when the FPS received some winty cuttings in the 1980s, or 1960s, rather, scientists eliminated its viruses, and the healthy clonal selection became referred to as cone 4, which is FPSO4. When the virus is removed, it tend to uh, curb the undersized berries, and now the clone is known for late ripening, heavy grape clusters that lead to high yields while producing reliably good tasting wine. And that's what clones do. That's the purpose of clones. It's not GMO at all. It's just it's clones. You're getting trying to get the best you can out of the grapes. Uh Let's see. In the 1980s, winemakers in Oregon sought clones that would succeed in their vineyard. And so they imported a group of French Chardonnay and Pinot Noir cuttings that became known as the Dijon clones. Now, they are widely planted around the United States. Two common Chardonnay clones are 76 and 96, and three of the most common Pinot Noir Dijon clones are 667, 777, and 115. And if we go back and listen to some of our people that we talked to about the clones, you will hear those numbers thrust out because they're very popular. Different clones will work better and survive better in different climates. And so that's the reason why clones are used. They, you know, and that's why that's what they're being sold for. The, the people who sell grapevines, the Fosters is a big one. Uh, that sells grapevines, and they list their cones, and they tell you what they're good for and all that. FPS 07 and FPS 08, which were cut in 1965 from different parts of the same vine in the Concanon Vineyard in Livermore, California, thought to originate in Bordeaux. But they've been known to make quality wine at high yields and have been widely planted in California since the 70s. The French clone, 337, also known as FPS 47, is also popular because it produces small berries with balanced tannin and structure. Now, these are for Cabernet Sauvignon. I, sh- I should have mentioned that. Cabernet Sauvignon grapes. Uh, so, fluctuating temperature and different things like that will make a difference in the clones. You know. Will Pinot Noir adapt to a warmer climate? That's going to be something that they're trying to work on. That's something that the rootstock or the uh, uh, clones and rootstock are being tested on now. There need to be uh, looking out for mutations that are heat resistant, drought resistant, and disease resistant. And this is going to be the ones that are going to be traveling into the future. Uh, with us in winemaking for the grapevines and Pinot Noir being one of them since they are such a cool weather traditionally a cool weather grape it's you know you got to remember it's not just fermented grape juice if you just want to a nice drink you don't have to think about this stuff it's something that gives you a little extra knowledge it gives you a little extra something to know and I think personally that they should make a note on the wine bottles of what clone it is. I think it would be interesting just to know what clone I'm I'm drinking here. And then that way, I mean, we've got AVAs, American Viticulture Areas. We've got 
vineyards, we've got wineries, we've got all this other stuff that people gravitate toward because they are particularly excited about those type of grapes. Why not let us know the clones? Let us know what clone they are, and then that way we can say, okay, this is clone number 657 that I particularly like. I found that I have enjoyed this particular clone before. And you try it now, and you look for it, and it's on the bottle, and you say, oh, here's another 657. I think it would be a good idea to list the clones. I don't foresee it happening. Maybe we can start a major movement in this country to start getting clones listed on bottles, but I, I still don't see it happening. It's uh, a good way to find something that you might like. But again, once it gets into the winery, what the person who's making it does to it can make a difference there also. Now, since we've been talking about clones, I'm going to a guide to Pinot Noir clones around the world. And uh, this is uh, interesting, I think. I, you know, No other variety attracts as much clone talk as the Pinot Noir, which is right, because that's usually the ones we talk about, uh, for all the right and wrong reasons. To unpack that chatter, we need to strip the myth out of it and explore a little bit of the history. So here we go. Why do winemakers use clones? In the late 19th century, phylloxera, a devastating insect that destroys vine roots, befell European vineyards and changed how growers planted and cultivated grapevines. Rather than propagate the vines by rooting a branch from a neighboring vine or cutting, or cutting growers grafted their European vines, called vitis vinifera, onto rootstocks imported from America that were resistant to the pest. This prompted mass replantings throughout Europe onto American rootstock. Initially, this spread some diseases. Both the yields and quality of the newly planted vines varied, and a need for reliability and consistency spurred several viable vine breeding and propagation programs throughout Europe. This was back 1800s. And they went crazy on trying to get this stuff under control and trying to get it so that it would be viable and not fall apart and not create small berries or disease. But before and after phylloxera, European growers devoted to quality would select their best vines for propagation. They'd observe vines for years and select them for particular traits, and then they were propagated based on what they saw, which is basically the practice used today. Uh, by carefully choosing virus-free sanitary grafted vines had unpredictable traits, like variable yields and even uneven ripening. So researchers developed a new process. They took cuttings from vines with specific and desirable traits. They'd graft them, plant them, and watch to see if those carried the desired traits. If so, they'd propagate cuttings from those vines again through several generations. All these cuttings can be traced directly to the initial mother vine and all share the same DNA. That is clone selection. The practice began in Germany 
in the 19th century, but was fully established by the 1920s. <coughs> Excuse me. Colonial selection is a slow, costly process that requires years of observation and propagation. But it enables growers to plant vines with reliable and predictable traits. And that's one of the good things about it. Let me get a sip of wine here since I'm coughing. Okay. <clears throat> I think. Uh, there we go. Initially, colonial, uh, colonial selection allowed growers to ensure commercially viable yields for the fussy varieties like Pinot Noir. But throughout the 20th century, the aims of the clone selection evolved in tandem with preoccupations of the time. When the official French colonial selection for Pinot Noir began in the 1950s, the climate was cooler. Growers needed to ensure that grapes would ripen sufficiently, so they selected traits like good sugar accumulation and early ripening. Later, once ripening was ensured, traits that improved wine quality like color, stability, and tannin structure became important. But in Germany, where official clones had been developed much earlier, growers tended to prioritize Pinot Noir clones that grew in looser bunches on the vine because those grapes were less susceptible to botrytis. And we've talked about botrytis in the past, too. By the late 1980s and 90s, both French and German selections focused on aromatic intensity alongside with previous traits. The first official French clones of Pinot Noir were released in 1971, and they were numbered from 111 or 111 to 115 or 115. They were guaranteed to be virus-free. Clones 114 and 115 are still widely used today. The series 665 to 668, which contains the famous 667, was released in 1980. The series 743, including the famous 777, 778, 779, and 780, was released in 1981. And in the early 1980s, clones 823, 871, and 943 debuted. Now, where they get these numbers, I don't know. I mean, there's, I, they, I've never seen anything that explained the numbering system. Maybe there is a reasoning for it, and once you, I, I see a reason, I go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But I have never seen anything. So as far as I know, the numbering system is <clears throat> excuse me, is something that they came up with in the lab, and they just went with it. These ones I just referred to are referred to as the Dijon clones after the French town in Burgundy where they were found. The Dijon clones are licensed throughout the world in different nurseries. and They are reliable and they give what they want in the grapes and all that. That's say the f- famous ones and stuff like that. So these are all over. And again, if you start listening to some of the old episodes of people who talk about clones, they will mention those numbers there because those are always good. According to the French Chamber of Agriculture, 114 and 115 are appreciated for perfume and structure. Number 667 is known for aromatic and tannic 
finesse, while 777 offers a combination of finesse and power. Balance is the calling card of 828, and concentration and sometimes atypical aromas are the hallmarks of 943. So you see why I would like to have cones on the wine bottle. I would really love to see cone numbers on wine bottles. Because you pick up one that says, this is cone number 943, and you go, oh, okay. Well, let me see you know, the, the aroma. This is supposed to be typical of it. And I'm going, oh, yeah. There. So that's just you know, why I would like to see cones on it. Long before the French elections were released, California tried to ensure virus-free wines. Starting in the four, 1940s, uh, Dr. Harold Amo at the University of California, Davis, began to import Pinot Noir wines from France, Germany, and Switzerland. And he also selected cuttings in California from pre-prohibition vineyards. And this was Concanon and Winty in Livermore Valley, basically. His work eventually morphed into the UC Davis Foundation Plant Services, or FPS, which I just told you earlier, that was founded in 1958. As FPS evolved, methods to heat treat cuttings were developed to make material virus-free. Cuttings imported from Europe and selected in California were heat-treated and propagated, then numbered as clones that farmers could buy. Almost oldest documented opinion imported was in, import was in 1951 cutting from Pomard. It's a village in Burgundy. It was propagated and made available for planting at as UCD4. Once antivirus heat treatment became available, its offspring became UCD5 and UCD6, University of California, Davis. They were also found to contain viruses, however, so UCD91 was created from the original UCD4. All of them are known under their numbers as Palmard. So the Palmard clones for Pinot Noir are those particular numbers. So that's why you get, <laughs> that's why it's so confusing. You know, they're always coming up with different ones all the time. In the 60s, California used clones as a way to plant virus-free material rather than to achieve specific traits. They were looking for you know get away from virus and. Uh, Many Pinot Noirs from California and Oregon appreciated its intense fruit and spice. The other clone, key clones from that period were UCD-01A, UCD-02A, and UCD-03A, which stem from the good-yielding and perfumed Waldenswill clones that Alma imported from Switzerland in 1952. Another key clone, Merrifield II, came from a private nursery in Switzerland in 1966. It became known as UCD-17 and 23, and they're still used today because they are so botrytis-resistant. So it can be very confusing. What, what, do, what do we want in our clones? What are we looking for in our clones? Uh, it's just, There's so many different things. Again, I wish that they would do that. Uh, the Martini clones, UCD-13 and UCD-15, were selected by Almo and winery owner Louis Martini in an experimental vineyard in Canaris. And later selections became UCD-66 and UCD-75, and those were also through Martini selections. 
And then Mount Eden selections also came out, and those were very popular in uh, 1995, 1996. And uh, let's see, uh, one enduring myth, I'll skip a little bit of this, because talking about one enduring myth about Pinot Noir is that it mutates more frequently than any other variety. Is there much truth to this? As far as they know, no scientific study has ever been shown that specific molecular mechanisms would make Pinot Noir more prone to mutations than other grape varieties. This is by grape geneticist Jose Valamos, who's PhD. Nevertheless, it's certainly one of the oldest grape varieties in the world. Therefore, it has plenty of time to acclimate somatic mutations and epimetic modifications. Yeah, we don't know what those mean, but we understand. Oh, here we go. Epigenetic modifications are how genes express themselves to their environment. For example, all flamingos have the same DNA, but depending on their food or environment, they can appear whitish, pale pink, or bright pink. So it's their environment that makes it different. Pinot Noir is similar. They will adjust to their environment and present different genetic traits based on their environment. And that helps to select their, their clones. Today, winemakers spend a lot of time weighing the pros and cons of clones, and depending on the styles of wine they want to make, it's an imperfect science. So, again, how the clones grow up and what you do with them once you get them into the winery makes a difference. It's difficult to get a good feel for true character of a clone when you're not sure what it's going to turn out like in the vineyard. So... Uh, not only is it rare to taste a single clone out of a neutral barrel, but the winemaker favors excessive ripeness. He'll obscure the true character of the clone, which is probably the reason why you don't see clones listed on the bottle, because so many of them are blends. Seldom, if ever, do you find a grape that is a single vineyard, single grape type that is made into a wine. Most of the time, it's blends because it will give you the characteristics that you are searching. So, uh, Nick and Andrew, his brother Andrew Pay, or P, planted seven Pinot Noir clones and heritage selections in 1998. Today, today they have 13 different ones. They see some wineries plant huge blocks of single clones in search of predictability and even ripening. And yet the single-clone practice can also mean a loss of diversity and resilience. So they plant different ones to get what they want in the blends and how they want to do it. In Burgundy, the uh, association technique of Viticole de Burgoon, an official agency of the Agricultural Chamber, has shifted its approach to clone selection. Preserving biodiversity and adopting to climate change are key now. The ATVB scouts, observes, and selects vines across Burgundy to find the widest diversity of possible characteristics. These include traits that were previously shunned, like slow sugar accumulation or high acidity. 
once they've been observed and propagated over years, these individual clones form part of ATVB's group selected, graded into Pinot Superior with with good stable yields versus less stable uh, Pinot Fin yields and Pinot Trey Fin with very low yields. These clones are never sold individually, only as part of an ever-adapting selection. Okay. Of course, today's growers have several options. Certified cones out of Germany, out of Switzerland, out of Italy, and France, and the United States, and all over the place. So there are uh, numerous options. But why do clones matter? All right. Basically, clones are a huge viticulture achievement and play a significant role in modern wine growing and also help to meet the challenges of climate change. Observation, diversity, and the preservation of a wide gene pool are a key. Ultimately, clones are only one part of the vast matrix of elements that find their way into your glass. They are only they they only add to Pinot Noir's infinite allure. So there you go. Uh, like I say, the reason we probably will never see clones listed is because. They blend, and most of them are blended. And so because of the fact that they are blended, chance of seeing clones uh, on a bottle of wine are slim, if not none at all. Yeah. So oh, Easy Rider's been making comments to us. Hello, Easy Rider. Um, yeah, I was going to mention that real quick, but uh, there were almost shutting the show down for tonight. So yeah. <laughs> kinda, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I have a couple of people, a couple of people in there. Yeah. Hmm. So, well, thanks. Thanks for popping in. Uh, he's writer and, uh, enjoy your comments. Um, I didn't see him. I was looking at the other articles there. I, I didn't get a chance to jump back and see these. Uh, so there you go on clones and, uh, a bunch of different stuff tonight, and things I've been wanting to pass on to you for some time. Uh, so I uh, got an opportunity to do it tonight. And then next week we have a guest. I don't know who it is right now. I don't have it listed here. And, uh, I'm, so just tune into our our yeah. site, and we'll tell you who our guest is next week. And that's it for this week. Very good. Um, yeah, we have... Uh... November 12th is our next show, 7 p.m. Eastern, uh, whatever it is, time. And November 19th, apparently, we have another guest, uh, but those will be announced. Uh, we, you know, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and right here on Blog Talk Radio, and uh, we'll let you know who the guests are when the show gets programmed in. Um, I don't have anything else, but uh, thank you, oh, writer, also. Yeah. I do, I do, oh. I do. Late I, want to, I want to also mention again uh, a previous guest and mm-hmm. what uh, uh, the uh, movie and the mm-hmm. uh, uh, book. The movie is uh, Wine and War. It was the we had the director and the uh, there are two directors and the writer on the show with us, and they uh, a very interesting. Uh, informally show, but Wine and War is a documentary, and it's about the 
making of wine in Lebanon. Uh, did you get a chance to see that? Have you? No, not yet. Yeah, okay. I, I, no. yeah you, you, I just wondered. Uh, they, uh, it is a very interesting show, very interesting movie, and all proceeds go to uh, Children's Hospital in, in uh, uh, Lebanon, Brett, Lebanon. So if you get a chance, check it out. Uh, and uh, it's online. You can just go online and you can uh, watch the movie. It's about 90 minutes long, I think, but it's well worth your time. And mm-hmm. we also have uh, another guest that's been on a couple of times, a, a uh, Jim uh, Lochran, who has who is a writer, and he has written books, and he has written an online a couple of online books. One of them is, jeez, uh, uh, I can't think of that. his his title names on it. I'm trying to find it here. Uh, anyway, what's what's what? the, the red wine oh, and white? Uh, yeah, the 15 minute. Um, That's uh, okay. let me go back and. Yeah, yeah, no, I was doing the same thing. I'm trying to find. 15 minute guide to red wine and the 15 minute guide to white wine. Um, 28. 28 pages on the red wine guide. Uh, it's already out, and I already got my uh, invitation to pick up. Remember, he said the uh, first copies are going to be free on Amazon, uh-huh. and I already received uh, a little uh, link for that, so I'll be able to uh, oh, pick that one up and, uh, and take a look at it. Yeah, it'll be good. Um, good. So, Jim Lockren, thank you very much. Jim Lockren, yeah. Just, uh, so, uh, <laughs> you know, check those out. The first copies free uh, are 99 cents. If you don't get it within, I don't know, I think it's going to be free for the first couple of weeks. Or ninety nine cents after that, and the white wines two ninety nine. Uh, great little books, uh, great little wine one hundred one. And this is always mm-hmm. seems to be what we use, but it's it's a good way to describe it. It's just some basic information. It's a good list of wines to pursue and stuff like that. So his is coming out, and also I've got a note from uh, from him or his his people saying that they'd be happy to give away a copy of each of them to uh, to a listener. Uh, I need to figure out how this would be fair to do. I don't know yet, but the books are coming out on Tuesday, which was day before yesterday. So they are out now. I got this note here a couple of days, a few days ago. So they're they're available now. So go check those out also. So there's a movie and a couple of books you can check out from from past listeners. So. Uh, and don't forget, uh, last last, uh, last week we had Joy Neighbors, and she also has a book out, uh, The oh. Family, Tree, uh, Family Tree Cemetery Field Guide, uh, available on Amazon uh, for Kindle and hard copy, and at uh, many, many bookstores. So uh, check that one out as well. It's a yeah. was a topic that's, that was covered last week. So. One good thing you. about that, if you're into genealogy, that's that's a great book because she tells you how to how to read yeah. Cemeteries and how to read the uh, um, headstones and headstones. Uh, she's the tombstone tourist. Does uh, what she has uh, and yeah, really, really cool. So yeah. Um, so that thank you. Really That's good. something else I, I forgot. So so check all those out, and uh, we'll see you next week. Yeah, and uh, thank you for tuning in, and be safe, and uh, have a great. I don't know if any. Vacations or anything, or not vacations, what do you call them? Holidays? Holiday? No. No, I don't yeah. think anything's <laughs> happening this week. This is one of those. Uh, oh, Veterans Day is the 11th. Is it? Yeah, coming you up on the 11th next Wednesday. 
Oh my gosh! Yeah, we can't forget that. Uh, Hug a vet, definitely. everyone. Hug a vet. Yep. Tell them, tell them thank you, oh. thank you them for their service, and uh, you know, hug a vet this week. Yeah. Well, you can't because of COVID, but you know, yeah, and you know, do a virtual hug. And uh, but uh, you know, let the let the vets know you appreciate them out there. And, uh, it's yeah. You know, you're like I always like to see the signs that say you're speaking English. English. Think a vet that is not German. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very good point there. (laughs) That's it. That's it, exactly. Totally different place here. (laughs) Yeah. Um, All right. Thank you. November 11th, don't forget Veterans Day. Veterans Um, Day. And we'll see you on the day after, on November 12th. Thanks again. Thanks again, and have a great week. I'm losing my voice. I don't know why. Uh, All right. Here we (laughs) go. You were talking so much. That's right. I guess so, but I didn't say anything. You do all the talking. All right, I'm out of here. (laughs) Here We'll see you all next week. Be safe. This concludes tonight's broadcast of All About Wine with your host, Ron. For show information, links to All About Wine on Twitter and Facebook, or to be a guest on this show, visit the show website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Archive shows are available for download on iTunes or on our show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash allaboutwine. Thank you for listening. Drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine. Wine.